Space Live, a show about anti-oppression and communal healing. Each week we pick a hard-hitting topic and dive right into the awkwardness. And we're here. I'm Tyshell. I'm a trained social worker, educator, diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility practitioner. And here's my co-host. Hello, my name is Mel and I'm an author, an activist, and a social ethicist. So today we're going to get into the topic of prison abolition. What is it? Will it work on all of those things? But because Mel and I are literally not experts in this topic and we really all. want to, no, not at all, but we care about it and that's yes, why we we're do. bringing it to you. So we wanted to bring on someone who does some work in this area and really talk to them and dig in with it. So Mel, can you introduce our guest? I absolutely can. Her name is Britt Dorton, and she is a law student whose advocacy focuses on the intersections of prison abolition and disability rights. Since 2019, she has worked closely with current and formerly incarcerated people, both in a professional capacity as a paralegal and through academic research, courtroom support, and other organizing efforts. Britt's thesis examined the long-term mental health effects of solitary confinement and she is committed to seeing an end to the practice in her lifetime. So let's welcome everyone, Britt Dorton, to Brave Space Live. Hi, Britt. Hi. Hi. Welcome. <laughs> I gotta Excellent. be like that. I, I'm the welcome train. Woo! Welcome. <laughs> I feel honored. So excited to be here. And thank you for the wonderful welcome train. <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. We're so excited to dig into this topic and honestly talk about, because we, I mean, we all know not everybody knows a prisoner, I would say, but everybody knows yeah. about prisons and jail. And actually, I'm not even sure if people know what the difference between the two is. <laughs> I, I just learned yeah. this the other day. Exciting. Yes, yeah, so many people have no clue. And I have friends who like use them interchangeably and I could just swoop in and be like, hey, fun fact, today you get to learn that there is in fact a difference. Okay. What is the well, difference? Okay, I was going to say, let's start it. there. Let's start yes, with the difference. Yes, a great place to begin. So the difference between prison and jail, prison is typically for, um, well, we'll start with jail first. It's a, the quote-unquote lower level. Jail is usually short-term holding. Um, so a lot of folks who are in jail are people that um, haven't been sentenced yet. Maybe they haven't gone through trial, been convicted, um, or they have very, very short sentences. Um, so once you have been sentenced and convicted, then you're usually going to a prison, and that's going to be more of a long-term stay, looking at like months, years, and so on. So is prison abolition, the, does that include jail abolition as well? Or would jail still exist in, in that yeah. model? Yeah, so I think the majority of abolitionists um, are looking at the general carceral industrial complex. So it's prisons, it's jails, it's immigration detention centers, it's juvenile detention, all of those spaces where we put human beings into cages um, as a way to sort of deal with the social problems we face. Uh, yeah, quote unquote social problems. Um, yeah, all of that is, is stuff that we wanna see abolished um, and put an end to. Um, and I think that also generally includes like policing as well. It's so interesting how far reaching this this topic is. And when yeah. you said juvenile detention centers, I recently learned that, and I know we're not talking about the foster system today, that's mm -hmm. an entire other episode, but mm -hmm. I recently learned in my state 
uh, teens that don't have foster care placements get put in juvenile detention. And so when you're talking about criminalizing people from a really young age, and I've heard the term prison, preschool to prison pipeline a lot. Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack here. I think that's so interesting too, because when we talk about like, and, and I'm sure we can get into even like the why prison, why prison abolition, right? When we talk about that, one of the things it brings up that you said, Mel, is like not just the school to prison pipeline, but looking at uh, criminalizing people for things that they have no control over, which is another, because most of of the time when we talk about prison, when we talk about inmates, when we talk about people who are in jail, Mm -hmm. if we're using, we're not gonna use them interchangeably, but if (laughs) if we're using them colloquially and interchangeably, we're talking about people who commit a certain act. Right. But but when we look at the entire system, and I'm sure we'll get into this and in, in having this conversation is criminalizing things like vagrancy or homelessness and all of these prison, uh, you know, in, yes. incarcerating people for not having families is like a wild thought process. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's something I, we can also get into is like once you are in the system, once you've been processed in prison, the myriad of ways that people can get set sent back to prison um, for things that have nothing to do with them actually committing any sort of crime. Um, It really is just a system that once folks get swept in, it has such large ripple effects, not only for their lives, but for the lives of their families and their friends and the people who love them. Um, And I think the the deeper you go down the rabbit hole, the more insidious the whole thing feels, especially when it comes to the U.S. prison system. How did you become so passionate about this issue? Yeah, I always say that I very much stumbled into abolition on accident. Um, I got my start in disability rights and disability justice organizing that came from my experience as a disabled person. Um, And ironically, one of the only accessible classes I could take on my college's campus my first year um, for my minor was a class on human rights. And every week we focused on a different aspect of human rights. And one week the issue was solitary confinement. and we read an article about the psychological impacts of solitary and myself having come off of a year of essentially medical isolation was thinking you know hey like that year was really hard for me not seeing people being by myself all the time and i was like in my parents house and i had access to a laptop and my cat Um, and if that was that hard for me i can't even begin to imagine what that would be like in in a prison um but i want to learn more about this because there's a part of me that can like relate to that um so i started getting interested in solitary in incarceration um and took a class on uh police torture in chicago that introduced me to a number of formerly incarcerated folks i started doing courtroom support um i started working at a legal aid clinic and from there it really was just full speed ahead and i haven't looked back but it definitely was something that was a process like when i first started out i also had all of these questions about like what what are well without prisons even look like and what are we going to do about you know people who commit crimes how are we going to keep ourselves safe and so i think for a lot of people the topic can seem really daunting but it's totally okay to be like asking questions and learning along the way um and along for the ride so if you're listening to this and you're like uh, that's too much for me to to delve into it's okay to take baby steps that's I what i so, go, go ahead go ahead Mel. no no please you please go for <laughs> i was thinking so, that's so interesting because like I always think like when you get into like work that really focuses on your passion, it's like the the YouTube rabbit hole that you go down. It's like, I took one thing and this led to this and led to this and it's it's so interesting. So when we were talking about, and I, I mean, I, I th- really wanna dig into the concept of what 
it means what prison abolition means yes so what what is your conceptualization of what is prison abolition i heard a little bit in there but i'd love to hear more yes totally so whenever i'm explaining prison abolition to people my favorite thing to start with is a quote from one of my favorite abolitionists and scholars ruth wilson gilmore um she's incredible her work's amazing um highly recommend anyone read her stuff. Um, But something that Ruth Wilson Gilmore has said is that prison abolition is about presence and not absence. And so when people hear Mm. abolition, they're thinking, so like absence, you're going to get rid of prisons, you're going to get rid of all of these carceral spaces, and what's going to be left to protect us? You want to abolish and defund police, what's going to be left? And what abolitionists are really focused on, what the core of the movement is, is Um, the presence of other systems and other structures, putting time and energy and resources and support into the things that actually strengthen our communities, keep people safe and are life affirming as opposed to uh, institutions that that just decimate life and its value. Um, So abolition is about saying, you know, what are the root causes of crimes um, that people are worried about? What's going on and how do we make space for those things rather than believing prison can be the solution. So abolition is saying, yeah, we want to get rid of prisons, um, but we do that by uh, investing in making sure everyone has access to a good education, that people have access to jobs that pay them a living wage, so that folks have their needs met um, and aren't living in desperation, so that people have access to physical and mental health care, um, so that people have communities they feel safe in and people they can go to for support. Um, it's, it's looking at all of the reasons why crime happens and saying, what if instead of punishing people, um, we made sure that nobody got to the point where these things were happening in the first place. Um, and so I really think that abolition is about doing those two things in tandem, working to decarcerate and to defund and to abolish, um, but doing that by focusing our, our resources and our, our care um, into the things that actually support our communities. That wow. is so well said. That is so, so amazing. So comprehensive. Yes. <laughs> so. So I wrote a paper in grad school about the religious history of prisons and prison reform in the 1800s. Can I just give you all like a tiny touch about this? This is a really interesting thing, I think, because it it does relate to how we see prisons and and how we conceptualize them in the modern world. And and Britt, I think I'm probably telling you things you already know. So if you know more than me about this, please feel free to jump in. But so before the 1800s, we, we used to like throw people in essentially a dungeon, like chaining people to walls. You think like the medieval conception of like, you know, detaining people in a, in a super cruel and inhumane way. And in the 1800s, religious reformers reformed prisons and they outlawed things like chaining people to the walls because it's horrifying. What they did was they modeled prisons after monasteries so they created cells like monks had and then you were supposed to go in your they were send prisoners to their cells to uh to repent and to be penitent which is where we get the word penitentiary mm-hmm. because this mm-hmm. is where we send people to to to, mm-hmm. to repent for their sins and to think long and so hard penance, yeah. by themselves to do penance alone mm-hmm. but so our our la- our last 150 years of prisons have been modeled after this kind of archaic understanding of religion Mm -hmm. and not on modern psychology and what's actually healthy for human beings based on empirical research and psychology and studies. So this is really interesting because a lot of people think, well, 
this, this is the argument that I hear. Well, prisoners don't have it so bad, right? They get three meals a day. They have clean water. They're safe. They're, you know, they want to, some of the terrible stereotypes, like people just want to go to prison because then they have a place to live. You know, all the things that people say about these systems. But uh, we, a lot of people think that these systems are humane and he healthy when they're, they're really archaic and cruel in many ways, right? Yes. Oh, very much so. And and what's fascinating about that is so this idea like the, the penitentiary and the penitence um, is basically how we got solitary confinement. Um, and all of those practices came from the Quakers. And what I find really fascinating is that the modern Quaker um, community is actually very abolitionist. Really? Um, very abolitionist and especially when it comes to solitary confinement they are like hey um you know way back in the day it was our thinking that kind of led to this carceral setting um as we know it and we think it was a huge mistake and it's doing a lot of harm and we should really stop doing it and so quaker organizations are actually very much at the forefront of like campaigning to an end to solitary and in many cases like abolition in general um which i think is very fascinating but awesome. we also kind of see this like dual evolution in the U.S. prison system of like a divide at, um, you know, the, between the North and the South, where you do have kind of that more like penitentiary, like isolation thing happening in Northern prisons, whereas prisons in the South, in many cases, um, evolved out of plantations. Um, prisons in the South basically popped up as ways for um, folks to continue putting black people um, in slavery. And to this day, some of the largest prisons, including Angola uh, in, this, in uh, Louisiana, is basically a modern day plantation. And literally prisoners are put in chain gangs, shackled together and taken by a guard on horseback out to fields to pick cotton. And overwhelmingly, these are black people who are incarcerated and white guards on horses and it it looks exactly like slavery but it's in you know the 21st century um and so it's it really is uh kind of a, a very different system in the south and both are like equally awful for different reasons friends of mine who are also in abolitionist spaces and working in prisoners rights we all kind of say it's like pick your poison like each prison is like right. uniquely horrifying in its own terrible way um but i think that also you know ties into what you were saying mel about these misconceptions of of prisons being comfortable and of prisons being safe. And as someone who has spent a lot of time reading mail from people who are incarcerated, um, looking at footage and photos and visiting prisons, anybody who has been in a prison and seen the conditions that people live in um, can, can very much refute that. And I'm happy to talk about some of the things that I've seen that it's just, it really is no place for a human being. So I was thinking about that because I, I am from Philadelphia, which is like yeah. the, one of the first mental hospital, mental health <laughs> hospitals, or I would say mental hospital versus mental health hospital, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> and where the first, one of the first uh, country's first prisons is Eastern State Penitentiary. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and also like where a large amount of Quakers are from, right? Pennsylvania, yes. Philadelphia. So I'm a part of all of those. And I know all of those. I mean, I went to yeah. University of Penn. So it, it's, uh, we have a lot of tie into Quakers. 
But I think it's so interesting too. And when you bring in the, uh, when Mel, when you were talking about the religious aspect, I think, and then bringing in the racial aspect of all of it, like Angola sits on top of a plantation, which is how it get, it got its name. But so I think about this is so interesting. And we were in preparation for the show. We were watching and listening to one of my favorite, um, uh, abolitionist uh, Mark Lamont Hill and he was talking about this conceptualization of crime right mm-hmm. and I thought this was a really interesting place to even like touch on in that people commit harm mm-hmm. but we conceptualize certain things as crime because crime doesn't always stay the same certain yes. things are crimes certain things get decriminalized certain things become crimes certain people get longer sentences for the same crime so like when we're talking about this moralistic fiber because when people think about jail they think about this person committed a wrongdoing and they have to go to this place, whatever it is. Usually, and I, and I think one of the things, and I know we'll probably skip all around because it's not a linear conversation as all our mind shoots in different places. Um, this thought process of when a person commits a crime or harm or whatever, they're gonna go to jail, go to prison. But it depends on what the crime is, who sets the standard. So then we get into all of these other different systems and the thing that you were talking about that really led me to thinking about this, Brett, was this thought process of the pre... I was thinking prequel, right? Like, mm-hmm. abolition is really focused on the present and the prequel. Like, what led to this thing that we call this crime that we want to put someone away for, right? Yeah. What led to this? And then we have to get into every other system, health system, mm-hmm. economics, education, all of these things. And when we yeah. look at that, it's such a large, large system. So I'd love to hear just like your conceptualization of, you know, crime overall and what we can do. Because what, cause if we say, if we tell people, let's take away pri- prisons, let's take away police, they're like, okay, but what are we left with, mm-hmm. right? Like what we can do and how we can in- engage with that. Totally, yes. I, yes, I'm like trying to <laughs> think about how to respond because there's so many good Sorry, points you made. So many no, good it's, things. No, it's <laughs> fantastic. Um, so yes, I think that when we think about crime and what gets conceptualized as crime, um, a lot of sociological studies basically come back to like what we think of as crime and what we criminalize is really kind of a form of like social control and asserting certain social norms of like this is normal and this is deviant and the deviant needs to be punished so that certain social norms are adhered to. And I think we've seen this, you know, in, for example, the the evolution of uh, gay marriage. Um, that, you know, same-sex couples, anything that was not heterosexual between two cisgender people was uh, outlawed, was criminalized. You could go, you could be charged and go to prison for that. Um, Trying to force for very social long norms. Exactly, yeah. It's those social norms that need to be enforced. The same thing with interracial marriage. It's enforcing those social norms. Like, who is the harm being done to um who is who is being hurt by that um right. nobody that <laughs> i can somebody's think of. property right being, yeah somebody's, exactly. somebody is gonna get something that they shouldn't have you know exactly it's like it's these it's these norms that are being protected and so it is very interesting to think about like what gets criminalized and why and also who decides what should be criminalized um and what are the things that we, you know, you, you get uh, community service for and what are the things you have to go to prison for? And also, who are the people that get told community service or, you know, pay us a certain amount of money and you're good to go, uh, but you have to go to prison for the same convictions? Right. And then um, I haven't even conceptualized the thought process of like, 
what is it payday prisons or like the ones that people pay to go to prison and it's like a, mm-hmm. a it's like a it's like a motel instead of a hotel but it's like right. you're you're paying and of course if I'm a parent and my child goes to jail and I can pay for them to be comfortable while they do it then I would but then we're cr- criminalizing poor Exactly. Yes. It's the criminalization of poverty. And I think that that's something that we see so much in the prison system. Like when you think about uh, bail, for example, like the people who have to sit in jail before they've been sentenced are the people who don't have the money to make bail. And so they are having to sit in jail simply because they are poorer than whoever can post bail. Um, and so it's it's all of these like little insidious ways. It's who can afford the lawyer that will have the time and the money and the resources to get them you know a good deal or to get them off, uh, as opposed to who is getting assigned the public defender who like bless public defenders. We love them. They do amazing work, but are also managing. Cases. Exactly, much like much a social worker has load. thirty cases. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, they have a higher caseload. Yeah. They're definitely not getting paid enough for the work that they do. Um, it's very much one of those turtles all the way down. Like the more you look at it, the more it's also interwoven. And I think when we talk about like prequels to um, acts of harm. Uh, it's an absurd amount of people who are in prison who are themselves um, have been harmed in some way, are survivors of abuse, of trauma, um, and that often never got the care or the support that they needed. Um, so many people, when they tell you their story, um, it will you know, begin with uh, abuse that happened at home or abuse at the hands of, of a a trusted mentor, a family member, um, not having enough money for food, having to uh, having to to work too much and still not being able to provide their for their families, or thinking, you know, the only way to provide for my family is by joining this gang or is by dealing drugs, um, or so many other things that that it it just it comes down to people not having the support and the care that they need, and rather than. Mm-hmm putting our time and our energy and our resources into those things that would give people what we what they need um we allow those things to fall apart and instead say we're going to keep funding prisons we're going to keep putting our money there and keeping people locked up um and that tears apart communities and families in such a big way if you're already struggling and you lose you know one of the parents of your household um, that's a source of income lost it's a source of childcare lost it's a sort of it's a source of you know just connection lost for kids it's, it's another trauma that they have to go through um, and it really just has such big lasting effects down the line for for the broader community um, that I think people don't really think about when they're when they're imagining what people are in prison for or the kinds of people that are in prison I think I think a lot of people would find would feel a sense of um, justice in decriminalizing things like nonviolent crime like drug and alcohol use or you know homelessness or things like that i think that that has pretty wide support mm-hmm. among a lot of people i've talked to i think what people can't wrap my, their minds around and i love to hear what you think about this question i'm sure you have a bu- brilliant answer i'm i'm looking forward to hearing but what what do we do with the people who are predatory and violent and do cause harm like if we don't have prisons anymore where do we what do we do with those people how do we keep the rest of us safe from their predatory actions 
Yeah, a great question. I think this is a question that is honestly like one of the first questions people ask when they're learning about abolition is something like, what about the murderers? What about the rapists? What about the serial killers? What do we do with those people? And I think the question, or the answer to that is, is really complex. Um, and I think that on the one hand, I, I'll, I'll start with, you know, people always like murder is, is often at the forefront of that. You know, people who have killed other people, taken other people's lives, what should we do with them? And I think, first of all, I think it's, it, it, there's this myth that when people imagine people who go to prison for murder, they think of like the Ted Bundys and the Hannibal Lecters of the world, that this is someone evil, this is someone who wants to hurt people for fun, for enjoyment, some like villainous mastermind. And for the vast majority of people in for violent crimes, that is just not the reality. Um, there are so many people who are in for um, you know, they committed a murder while they were in a gang. Um, they, they fought back and killed their abuser. Um, they committed a crime of passion, um, which is such a weird phrasing. There needs yeah. to be like a better word for that. Yeah. <laughs> so that. L- l- let me, let me, l- I wanted to interject because one of the things I think too, that we're thinking about too, is when we think about decriminalizing parts of, or, <laughs> or non-carceral ways of engagement, we're still talking about 90, what, 94% of prison people in prison are mm-hmm. nonviolent offenders. Yes. So then we're Isn't talking about, right, yes, uh-huh. really, really high. Oh, so yes. then we're talking about 5%, and of those 5% is what Britt is talking about. Of those 5% who are, who are, you know, repeat offender murderers and, and serial killers and it's sociopathic serial killers, right, yeah. it's, it's so small, but that's not who's holding up this prison industrial complex. Like right. that's, those are not, and that that's, I just wanted to interject because when we think about prison, we think about those people. And, and, and I also wanted to pull back and, and you know, we, we, we've already othered them by calling them those people, right? <laughs> because we've taken away their humanness in what has happened because we see them take a life. But when the state of whatever takes a life, we don't say, oh, the state is inhumane or whatever, thinking about this. I wanted to pull you, I do too. I mean, but I just think about it in that way because we're talking about 5% of 5%. Right. And and I just wanted to put that into context for our listeners. And yes. our and our wasn't our prison system design, it wasn't even designed to hold like half of the people our, our our mass incarceration system was not designed to hold the number what two million people something we yes, have yeah about two million people yeah. very very much overpopulated overcrowded um, a lack of anything that's actually rehabilitative which everyone says is what prison is for and it's not what prison is for mm-hmm. um, but yes it's a, such a small percentage of, of folks in prison who, who are who are violent quote-unquote offenders um, and so many of these incarcerated people aren't these you know super predators or whatever people like to think they are mm-hmm. um, and one of the stories that that I always tell is that one of my closest friends um, was convicted for murder and he did the murder. Um, He committed a murder when he was about 18 years old. He had been in juvenile detention before. He was in a gang Um, and so he went back to prison at the age of 18 and was in for 28 years uh, for the murder that he committed. Spent 23 of those years in solitary confinement. Oh my god. Yes, which is just a whole other like realm of horrors Um, and when he came home um, 
dedicated his life to working for a legal aid clinic um, as a prisoner's rights coordinator and trying to help other people who were inside. And every single free moment that he had that he was not at work, and he was at work way more than he should have been, was spent um, you know, working with organizations uh, to help kids who are in gangs get out of gangs or to direct them somewhere else before they even got into a gang. Um, people would get who were getting out of prison or who needed to go somewhere in order to not get a parole violation but didn't have anyone else to help them, could call him at all hours of the day. He would drop everything and go get them. Wow. Um, he, after coming home, was undoubtedly one of the most selfless, generous people I've ever known. Um, and I think it's possible to, to grapple with that that idea that people can change, that we aren't the worst thing we've ever done on the worst moment of our lives, um, and that somebody who who did a great harm taking somebody else's life could come out and still be someone who made the lives of so many other people a much better place. And I know without a doubt that the world is a better place because he was free in it. And that is the case for so many other folks I have met who, who are or were incarcerated, um, that they are not the same person they were when they went into prison. And that's of course, nothing to do with the prison system itself. <laughs> they don't become that because of prison, they become that in spite of prison and, and out of a desire to make sure that nobody else has to go through the things that they went through inside. Um, so I think that one, it's important for people to remember that, that, that those stories exist every day, that those people are, are real human people, they're not monsters, um, and, and that there are so many people who can do so much good if they get a chance to come home. But if you're serving a life sentence or a sentence that may as well be life, 20, 30, 50 years, you're never getting that chance to prove that, that people can change. You're never getting, what's, what's all of this rehabilitation supposed to be for if you're never actually getting to come home, if you're never getting that mercy and that grace. Um, and I think that's very important to think about. Um, and then I think the other facet of that is um, there are people that that do a lot of harm and that might always do harm and I don't know what the answer to what we do um, to keep people safe is but as one of my mentors said when getting asked that question um, she said I don't know what it looks like but I know it's better than what we have and I don't think we have to let the possibility of the unknown deter us from trying to build something better. So when I think about this too, I think, because here's the thing, like it, we already, is, I, I mean, I, I think we've already established that there's not a lot of rehabilitation going on. There, there are some <laughs> prisons that have some rehabilitation, but slowly without us watching, those things are being pulled away and stripped away, right? Um, yeah. programs, colleges, because people, ultimately, we we don't have to think about the everyday of other people, right? Like, it's this yes. is a general thing. Mm -hmm. And when you label someone a criminal, they're put into this place, and now we can think less of them as a, as a yes. subgroup of people. We just can, Absolutely. right? So when we think about what can happen, and I, and I was, and my, one of my favorite abolitionists, <laughs> and I mentioned already, Mark Lamont Hill talks about, um, there is no person who's doing that kind of repeated harm or harm in that way that doesn't have some sort of mental health issue, right? Like people aren't just out here committing those types of violent, very violent crimes 
for no reason. And often, even in, so, and I'm, I'm going into my, you know, I'm a, a clinical social worker. Often it's because, so when you think about people with like what we would call multiple, pers- multiple personality disorder, which mm-hmm. is really uh, borderline or- um, Disassociative uh, di- right, dis- identity. Right, yeah, DID, yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. Disassociative identity disorder. Um, and borderline personality disorder. These disorders are often because of the things that have happened to them in their lives, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. people would disassociate from themselves because of the things that they experience. So yeah. then still, I believe that abolition could work on those things so that these things are not happening. If I don't have to disassociate and often, you know, I mean, not just taking the the like very like uh, TV version of law and order and really <laughs> figuring out what's happening with a person. Often right. there still is some like Scooby-Doo at the end of it. What happened? Mm-hmm. Right. Why right. is this caused? And if we're putting people in, I mean, there are people who commit crime. Uh, or what we call crime, or or who are live in mental health institutions mm-hmm. because they have been deemed not competent to stand trial. So that's right. the difference between whether somebody is in prison because mm-hmm. one person thought or three people thought mm-hmm. you can stand trial, you can't stand trial, you can stand trial, you can't stand trial, or I'm going to plead insanity versus yeah. pleading guilty, which is who we get to do those things as well. So what mental health can look like. It has to be a part of that conversation, at least in my view of what abolition is engaging with, right? And I think about that because there's so much, and there's just so, it's just like so many, it's like an onion layer's worth of all of the things that happen and that people engage in and that we live with. And prison is not really solving that. We just get to watch some, to some degree, we get to wash our hands and say, well, they deserve to suffer because they did. And then we forget about all of the things that go into that. And we, we don't have enough time to even in this hour to talk about all of the things that happen like okay we're going to uh, there we're putting prisoners in indiana okay the indiana is going to get two more state reps because they were counting the prisoners but they can't vote really mm-hmm. all of these ridiculous things but i mean going back to the point just thinking about what what it can look like and if we all, if we had the answer for what things can look like, we would have done. I'm not going to say we actually would have <laughs> exactly. done it already, but like we still have to go through that process and imagine what that right. can look like because we're not we're not going to incarcerate people less less with the system yes. we currently have. Exactly, yeah, and I think that's something that I really love about abolition is that abolition is a creative, imaginative movement and practice. It's a movement of, of hope and of thinking about the world differently. And so we need not only activists and counselors and lawyers, but we also need we need artists, we need writers, we need people who are open to thinking in these big and different ways and saying, "Hey, what if?" Um, or you know, what, wouldn't it be cool if, what, what if we did it this way? And just imagining together what that would look like, because, um, you know, we're kind of building the plane as we're flying it. Um, and it might look entirely different than what we can conceive of now, but exactly like it, it can just because this is what we know doesn't mean this is the best way to do it. Um, Aren't there some countries that have almost effectively abolished prisons? Like I think mm-hmm. Norway, Sweden, some of the Norwegian yeah. countries have, um, mm-hmm. they have almost no prison population because they have other models of restorative justice that allow definitely. people to rehabilitate, reintegrate into society. Yeah, definitely. Especially a lot of European countries, the, the prisons there are 
as humane as a prison I think can be. Um, the spaces they they look like uh, almost like dorms. Um, they have access to much more opportunities for treatment and for care. And in a lot of countries um, across the Atlantic, a life sentence, for example, carries a maximum of about 12 years. That is a life sentence. And after that 12 years is up, you are expected to be going back into the community. And I think that maybe that's part of the reason why they have um, such a focus on rehabilitation and, and hum more humane practices, because there's this expectation that people are going to be coming home. Um, and when you think about who's coming home and, and what you want folks re-entering your community to have access to, how you want them to be feeling, what kind of mental state and tools and coping mechanisms you want them to have, you're obviously going to not want to completely traumatize them. Um, whereas here in the States, with sentences being the way that they are, um, there are a lot of people who might never be coming home once they go to prison. And so where's the incentive to make sure that, that people have a chance to get better if you're never going to let them come home? Um, we, yeah. we create criminals in this country. I mean, and, and for as huge as our mass incarceration system is, <laughs> if it worked, we would be a really safe place. We the would US be would be safe, right? Like if that system exactly. is clearly failing, we just keep throwing money at it. And now we have yes. private prisons and all this. But when I say yes. like we, is, I think we touched on something important earlier that I want to like come back to. We create criminals not only by criminalizing things like homelessness and drug addiction that should not be cr criminalized. It's ridiculous. If, if folks need help and support and resources not yeah. to be thrown in, in jail. Right. But we create criminals in the sense that we send people who maybe have done minor or nonviolent offenses. We send them to a place with a bunch of people who have done deviant mm -hmm. things and expect mm -hmm. them not to become more criminalized as they're interacting with people because we're products of our environment. It's the same. This is not a, at all the same, but I think about this. So I worked in higher education for a while and parents would be surprised when their, ch when their kids would get in trouble. Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, you sent a bunch of 17 year olds to live together. Like you said, <laughs> I, like, why would you, you would, you shouldn't even do that with seven. I'm going to send my 17 and 18 year old who has had no experience with life, who came from my, to learn how to live life, mm -hmm. which just doesn't even make sense. Right. And, and I, I think about what you're, what you're saying, Mel, because when we are, when we're thinking about how we criminalize people, we would live in a safer environment mm -hmm. one, but then I even think about, and, and I'll, I'll, I, I jumped to a different point. So we'll go back to that criminalizing certain things and how we separate what kind of crime is what type of crime, right? Like uh, white collar crimes and what the jail sentences that carry with those, but then there are nonviolent offenses that aren't white collar that get mm -hmm. larger sentences. Anyway, yeah. right, I wanted to hear from you. I just yes. was thinking, I was <laughs> if you break the economy, you get a little slap on the wrist <laughs> in like three months of parole. Mm -hmm. And if you have a little baggie of weed in your pocket, you get 10 years. Yeah. Like You, so, you assume my identity, sense. stole my credit card, and has been living as me, spending all of my non-money. Don't, mm -hmm. don't steal from me because you're not going to get much. But, like, just in thinking about that. But if you, you know, are sitting outside and you're tagging a wall, you've now committed a felony. So I think about Khalif Browder and how he spent time in jail without a sentence two a sentence. and a half years he was in prison for stealing a backpack wow. that he still yeah. said he didn't steal but because he was in jail because he did not get sentenced and people will move sentences back and yeah. when you go to when you get seen by a judge and because mm -hmm. he didn't have a lawyer and he could have been home the entire 
time, Absolutely. but he didn't have money. Right? Yeah. So then criminalizing poverty. Go yes. ahead, Bray, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, you're good. This is all so fascinating. And I'm I'm just like, I'm like, oh, there's so much I want to respond to. Um, yeah, no. But to kind of go back to what you were saying, Mel, I would even kind of push back this idea of like, you know, how, how we create criminals. I very much think that the system creates criminals, um, but I don't even think it necessarily has to do with like, you know, the, the people you're, you're around and, and you're with. And that can be a part of it. But what I have seen is that the, the system itself is the biggest um, creator of, of future crimes, of recidivism. Um, so I don't can you, know. Can you define that word for our listeners? Yes. Oh, yes. Sorry. Recidivism. Oh, yeah. Recidivism is basically um, is, is someone who gets released from prison going to commit another crime um, and go back to prison. So when someone uh, is recidivates, it's they've, they've committed another crime and they've probably been sentenced again, so they're back in prison. Um, and so I don't know how familiar you are um, with some of the ways that, that uh, parole or registries or uh, healthcare <laughs> work in the carceral system. Please educate system. me. Please yeah, educate okay. Me. So I'm like, I'm like, oh, where do I even begin? So, all right, so I'm going to start with prison healthcare because um, you touched on this earlier where you said, you know, people think prison's comfortable. You got a bed, you got healthcare, you got a TV. Um, and that's not the case. Uh, prison healthcare is abysmally bad. Um, there are prison... So, for example, I'm in Illinois. Uh, Illinois is all of their health care in their Illinois Department of Corrections is contracted through one for-profit medical company. Um, there is usually maybe one or two doctors for a prison. They're not there every day. Um, they kind of come in whenever. Their schedules can be up in the air. Um, some of them uh, are very old, and their specialty makes no sense to be a general practitioner, like maybe they were a podiatrist, and now they're expected to be the one person diagnosing and treating um, everything from cancer to severe mental illness in a population of thousands of people. Um, Some, there have been some states where prison doctors have been, um, it's been discovered that their licenses were revoked, but they were allowed to continue working as a doctor in the prison system. Um, So the healthcare is really bad and the wait times are absurd. Um, you might get diagnosed with cancer very quickly, um, but be told, you know, uh, you can't go in for your first treatment for the next six months. And then if we don't have anyone to transport you, it's gonna get pushed back. And so there are people who are dying every day of very preventable or treatable illnesses in departments of corrections simply because of the healthcare system in prisons. Um, so a lot of people are also leaving prison with new chronic illnesses or disabilities that they did not have when they come in. Wow. Um, it might be that they were in a fight um, and lost an eye, lost a limb, lost their hearing in one year, um, that they had something that should have been a treatable illness that didn't get treated, and now they have an ostomy bag, or they can't walk, or so many other things uh, that can happen. So you, you're coming home from prison, maybe, if that's your, your situation, and you are having to, one, afford health care that you couldn't afford before, uh, and two, find a way to work or make money, um, with a disability or chronic illness that might prevent you from working entirely. Um, So that's now a new barrier to being able to re-enter the world and get by um, without turning to things that are criminalized um, because it's going to be so much harder for you. 
Which then, gives you a more economic incentive to mm-hmm. do things that are considered harmful. Absolutely. And, yeah, absolutely. So, so if I hear what you're saying, you're you're arguing that, and I and I'm glad you push back on this because <laughs> these are my stereotypes and my my biases, yeah. my preconceptions. So what I hear you saying is that it's not so much that that people get sent to prison and are surrounded by criminals who are you know just bad bad people. Mm-hmm. I hear what you're saying is that the, just being subjected to this inhumane system itself mm-hmm. is what creates more criminal yes. behavior. Absolutely, yes, that's and definitely. I, I, I was thinking about also too recidivism in that when you come, when you take it as as, as Britt was talking about before, you've now extracted a person from mm-hmm. their home environment where they might have been making money and yeah. now they go to prison and they're not making money and the and their family has to send them money if they want them to survive yes. in prison as well right like Ex- exactly. they're going to give them this food but you have to eat whatever so w- imagine right. any diet you you know uh, mel was talking about being gluten-free earlier that's not going to exist in prison you're not going to get gluten-free flu- food in prison so if you want to keep your health as good as possible your family is now sending you money that's still right. less money in the home exactly it's less money in the home it's you know there are a lot of people who are incarcerated who are trying to work inside and send money home to their family but they're making pennies an right. hour pennies. for work literal um, pennies like 58 pe- cents yes. an hour exactly literal pennies like less than a dollar an hour so basically yes. slave labor which is, mm-hmm. which is and, still illegal and you're having still to pay illegal. not not only for food, but if you want to be able to write letters to your family or write letters to a lawyer who might be able to help you get out, you've got to pay for pencils, you've got to, or pens rather, I don't think pencils are actually allowed. Um, you've got to pay for paper, envelopes, stamps. If you, uh, a lot of prisons, especially here in Illinois, have a lot of issues with plumbing and running water because they're so old. And so at many points in the last year, water has been unsafe to drink. And the only way people can get water is by paying for water. Oh my God. To the point where there was actually, and this is just another aspect of like how awful the system is, there were a group of, um, you know, loved ones of incarcerated folks, mothers and and spouses and children um, who's, you know, got calls about this from their loved ones and said, this is unacceptable. We're going to do a water drive, collected tons and tons of bottles of, of water, plastic water bottles, drove them down to the prison, donated them saying, hey, here's the water, just make sure everybody gets us you know, everyone, including our loved ones, and then found out um, from their loved ones that rather than giving out the water, um, they had put it in the commissary and asked people to pay for the water that was donated for free by family members. It's it's so, it's so it, angering. I wanted it, to touch on this, so... this, this, this thought process of school to prison pipeline, because one of the things yeah. that you said, Britt, really triggered... Um, this the the prison pipeline and i'm and i say that because i'm i'm from you know philadelphia a major city and i went to high school and in my high school which was still a special admissions high school Mm -hmm. you had to take a test to get in we had i had no 11th grade english teacher like at all like Mm -hmm. at all we sat in the classroom by yourself at the end of the year they gave us a uh project and whatever you got on on the project Mm -hmm. you got in the class we also had no nurse so you talked about like the the one dot and also our chemistry teacher was a podiatrist. So all of the things you said had my like brain going. But yeah. he he our our chemistry teacher was a podiatrist. And I mean, I, I'm sure he took organic chem because he came became a doctor, but we also had no nurse. So if you were sick, 
the nurse would be there on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, if I got sick, they would either send me home or tell me to deal with it. And then just the thought process of what the not having the school be funded and yeah. go and I, I know that's not like even the direct school to prison pipeline but even yeah. just those remnants mm-hmm. feels familiar to people right like totally. you feel it popped up in my brain like that yeah oh absolutely i think there's a lot of parallels between some like the the lacking in the education system and especially you know when you look at, at underfunded school districts um and the overlap between who is getting you know, in that school to prison pipeline and, and why. Um, and so it's all of those little things before and all of those things that add up over time. If you are someone who grows up in a place where everyone you know has been touched by incarceration, has been impacted by the system, has been a survivor of some sort of violence or abuse, there's like a hopelessness and a, and a, and a, a, a belief of like, well, how am I going to be any different? And right. what's... Yeah what's the point um, if I'm just going to end up like everybody else? Um, and I think that's a hard thing for people to wrap their heads around when they have had the privilege of not growing up in a space like that, thinking, well, I just wouldn't make bad choices. You you have had the privilege that the, all of the choices available to you have been good choices. Um, and it's just a completely different world. And I think people have to have that empathy of like, this oh, yeah. is a... <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that I think that those of us who've never been faced with like either either not survive or survive and do something that's considered criminal to survive. Absolutely. If I have never been faced with that choice, mm-hmm. I need to shut up and listen to the people who have been faced with that choice and exactly. ask them what they need. Exactly. Right? I remember I think getting a- into to our to an argument with a with a woman whose husband works in DEI, so um, but he he stopped her. This was online because you know it's like people, you throw links at people online. But there was a picture going around, and there was a defendant um, who was a young black boy, uh, a bailiff who was a black man, and a judge who was a black man. Mm-hmm. And and the picture was like was putting the onus on the the um, the uh, of choice, and mm-hmm. it said um, like all of these people made their choices, mm-hmm. and that's how they got. And I'm like. This is, it's so, but they make it so simplistic because it's not just about choice, but it's also not like doing something criminal. Like it depends on what behavior is being criminalized. Like there was a guy who went, who fell asleep in his car Mm -hmm. and the police arrested him. Oh, it's, yeah. So it's, it, it really, it really is like who gets criminalized, who makes the rules and all of these different things. And some people have better choices available some people fight to have yes. some choices and some people's choices are taken away from them yes when you even melted your point about the choice thing when you're talking about people who end up in the foster care system who go to juvie because of mm-hmm. that right like yeah. that wasn't a choice that they made there is no choice right. there so sometimes people think choice is about making a choice sometimes choices are made for you mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. have to either fight against those choices or you become a, you know, what they say, a product of your environment, but it's not about a choice that you necessarily even made. I'm sorry, Brent, go ahead. No, you're good, you're good. No, this is all so fascinating and so good to hear people talking about. Like, I'm just, I'm thinking about how, you know, these choices that you have available to you, after you have been to prison, the choices available to you narrow in a way that is hard to fathom. Um, So, you know, now every time you are applying for a place to live, you are applying for a job, you, 
are going to have to check that box that asks, have you ever been convicted of a felony or have you ever been incarcerated? And checking that box is going to close so many doors. So people are limited in where they can live. They're limited in the jobs they can do. They're limited in their ability to go and get an education afterwards. And so all of these doors are closing. And so people who are coming home and are saying, hey, I, I serve my time and I, I'm, I'm a different person and I'm going to do better are trying to do better and we are slamming the doors in their face saying you already messed up once uh there are no second chances for you and then um, even moving yeah. the goalpost of what is a felony right uh, yes because totally so in some places steal people steal a car a teenager will steal a car and mm-hmm. the person gets it back and it's then they get a slap on the wrist but then what Khalif Browder was, was stealing a backpack that was worth, because of anything over mm-hmm. $50 in property right. is a felony. Right. It's a and, felony, right. And it's it's absurd. And, it's, and even once you are home from prison, there you are criminalized, your movement is criminalized in so many ways. So when you're on parole, or you're on probation, you're on electronic monitoring, which electronic monitoring is basically just like a, a new way to expand the prison system. Right. You Like a dog to- with a fence. Exactly, yes. You have to be at certain places at certain times. You have to have, so even just to get out of prison a lot of times, if you're out on parole and probation, you have to have an approved um, site to live at. And so if you don't have family that can that you can stay with, um, you have to find like a halfway house. And if there are no halfway houses with openings available, you might not be able to get released. Um, so, and you're being further criminalized just because you don't have anywhere to go. Um, and this is compounded for folks who are on sex offender registries or on murder registries that there are different restrictions about where you're allowed to live. Um, and then you might have to report to a parole or probation officer at a certain time, at a certain day. And if you, for example, don't have a car because when you go to prison, they take all of your belongings. So your license is expired now. Um, and how are you supposed to get a license when you don't have an address to get a license? You might not have access to your birth certificate, to any personal records. So now it's gonna be very hard for you to get identification. It's gonna be very hard for you to get a form of transportation. And if you miss one of those meetings because you didn't have transportation to get there, you can find yourself going right back to prison. Um, And you can be doing everything right and just because of these, the, the lack of resources available to you as someone who just got home, you can be going right back for doing nothing at all. Um, but what I, I think is even more insidious is something that is, is seen a lot in folks who come home after really long sentences, and particularly after time in solitary confinement, is people who have uh, committed minor infractions explicitly to get sent back to prison and you know and it's not what I think people would assume people people I think would would think oh then it must be comfortable it must be nice people want to go back because it's safe and it's free and whatever Um, and when people are asked you know why did you walk into a store and and steal a two dollar hat when you know you're on parole or on probation and the answers in in so many of these cases are I don't know how else I don't know how to be in the world anymore. I don't know how to be free and it's scary and it's overwhelming and I 
I, I only know how to exist in a cell. And I think that is just like the most devastating thing that, that we break people down to a point where they don't think that they can exist free anymore. And a lot of survivors of solitary and long sentences I know um, struggle very, very much with uh, suicidal ideation, with not wanting to be alive because they don't feel like they belong in the world anymore. It, it reminds me of the, the what do they call her? The, I think it was like the girl in the closet who was who was isolated from the world <laughs> and her family and was and grew up in a class. She yeah. didn't know how to, she didn't have <laughs> human contact. So it adjusted, yeah. it readjusted her brain. So she was yeah. able, able to walk, talk or go to school. And she mm-hmm. has to be cared for 24 seven because she yeah. has had no human contact for I think the first six years of her life or 12 yeah. years of her life. And we're talking yeah. about people who spend 23 years in prison. And I think about that because there was a, there was recently, I was watching a, you know, I'm, we are all students of TikTok University, I know, at least <laughs> yep. in part. And there was a man who spent, I think, 43 years in solitary, mm-hmm. 43, and he, uh, uh, 43 of his, he died at 75. Yeah. He got out, but for a crime he didn't commit. So when we think yes. about crimes like that and things that we, because, you know, forensic mm-hmm. isn't what it used to be and mm-hmm. lawyers and all of these different things, people spend solid, you know, most, a lot of people mm-hmm. on death row have yes. been, you know, exonerated. Right. And it's right. just such a wild thing for all of this. <laughs> and when we talk about prison abolition, we have to think about, it's not, we're not just, and, and, and I say, I say we, like I'm part of the movement. I am, I am. But like, when we think about that, we're not, it's not just for people who have been criminalized, who are criminals. It's also for people who have been wrongly convicted and yes. which of which there are so many, so right? Many. The Innocence yes. Project mm-hmm. works with those folks who may, because a lot of people will plead guilty yes. just so they get to, because they think they're going to get to go home mm-hmm. for a while or something. Because yes. they don't have any other options. Yeah, and especially, I mean, if if, if uh, you look at the legal system, I don't know how many people know how plea bargains work, but like plea bargains, a lot of times you get told, you know, hey, you're, you've been arrested for this crime and your options are, you know, if they find you guilty, if you, if you, if you, trial, if yeah. you, yeah, if, and you, you go to trial, if you go, if they find you guilty, and you don't take a plea, you're looking at 25 to life. If you take the plea, you're looking at five to 10 years, or you hope that they don't find you guilty. And so if you are somebody who is innocent or you're anybody and you're sitting there and you're thinking, gee, like that's that's a big gamble for me to take. Am I, do I plead guilty regardless in the hopes of getting that lesser sentence? Or do I try to continue to prove my innocence and fight for it and take the risk of being sentenced to 25 to life for something that I know I didn't do. Um, and and again, it's it's folks who aren't able to afford, you know, the best attorneys in the world that are having to make these hard decisions. And it, oh man, I'm like, there's so much I could go on about how the, so much. the legal system yeah. and policing in itself plays into this. Chicago has a long history of one police commander was found, uh, he and his the people working under him were found to have systemically arrested and um, and tortured black men on the south side of Chicago into confessing to murders they did not commit. This we're talking over two hundred people. Oh, my God, um, and that is one of one of the main reasons why Illinois abolished the death penalty because after this came out, they said how we we don't know what's going on here we can't justify executing people anymore got rid of the death penalty but there are still many many people in illinois who who were 
convicted for these crimes, they were physically tortured for days sometimes into confessing to. Um, and so it's like the whole system really right. feeds into who we're putting away, why we're saying we're putting them away, who we're targeting. And, and as Angela Davis says, prisons don't disappear the social problems, they disappear people. They disappear communities. And they, 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 they are so, they're, they're destroyers of life in, in all ways. Um, and I think we have to ask ourselves, like, what, how can we justify doing this to human beings, putting them in these systems that we know cause so much harm to the point where people want to end their own lives um, because they don't know how. Because they either to... can't be in, in the world or can't yeah. be in jail anymore. Right. right. And I just, I'm like, that's the cruelest thing that we've, we've made it impossible for people to know how to be free. Um, and I, I think it's just, it's heartbreaking. I think we have to ask ourselves, like, how how can we justify this? When when I worked as a paralegal and I read mail from incarcerated folks writing to us about the issues that they were experiencing, a lot of times was uh, cases of excess force, um, horrible conditions, uh, being targeted because they were queer or they were trans, not getting medical care. I, I would have to look up what folks were incarcerated for when we logged their information. And I hear, I've heard sometimes from folks who work in, in carceral spaces as educators um, that, you know, they don't want to know what the folks they're working with have been incarcerated for. And I think that's a completely valid um, stance to take. Uh, but what I found was that even having to know what the folks we were working with uh, had been convicted for and had done, it there was never anybody that I read the letter of the horrible things they were going through and thought to myself, mm, that person deserves this experience. Like that person deserved to have been brutally beaten by six guards because they did this crime. Never right. once was even, there. Even I mean, knowing, the, even knowing what they were convicted of, like even, even knowing what they were. That? Yes, even knowing yeah. what they were, they were convicted of. There was, there was not a single person that I thought they deserve this. And, and yeah. I think about that. And I won't go too deep in it because it's not my story. But I knew someone who was who was killed by police. And I will say, as I heard their story come across the news, I thought, oh, a criminal. Oh, that person had a gun on them. And then I heard the name and was like, wait a minute, I know this person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and and because when we think about, and, and I know we, we don't even have enough time to get into it deeply, but when we think about police brutality, we are often thinking about the people who are killed and not the people who live with the vast, yeah. all of the things that happen to them throughout mm -hmm. police brutality we only totally. we're thinking we hear about you know people dying but what about all of the other mm -hmm. being arrested use of force and we see these things and and we think about people who you know police who don't want to wear body cameras because or they turn them off and all of these different things when we're thinking about these conversations and even i mean there there's as a therapist people have had the same conversation that you were just having Britt, about like if I'm especially mandated, like mandated therapy, mm -hmm. I don't want to know what the diagnosis is. I want to meet the person first, at least. Yeah. And I think there's a there's both and right. Like yes. I want to meet the person first, and then we can talk about the crime because maybe then we'll be talking about, especially when it's and mm -hmm. we're still talking about the five percent of the five percent. Yeah. Of the you know of the hundred um of of what may have happened and you start to hear because now you have to humanize them and that's what criminality yes. is supposed to do is supposed to mm -hmm. it's taking away your humanness right yes. so now i can just treat you however yes. uh, i know we got to wrap up too but well, I, so, I, I know i was gonna say sure, mel you got a question. i want to make sure to get something in this very yeah. important because if anybody listening to this is still a doubter about whether prison abolition is necessary okay, okay. this system is awful by design 
it's awful by design and it was created that way on purpose and that sounds like conspiracy but let me show you something okay so i'm going to put a map up on the screen if you're listening to the podcast you can't see it but i'll explain what i'm showing you and we'll this post a, it later we'll post it later this is a map of incarcerated americans from 1920 to 2014 okay 1920 we had about 0.1 million about a hundred thousand people in prison okay that number slowly kind of goes up until 1975 Okay, by 1975, we maybe have like 400,000 people in prison. And then it goes shoom, through the roof. 1975, right, right, right before 1980. And then by the year 2000, we have almost 2.5 million. So in 60 years, so no, 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 not even 30 years, we like over quadrupled, we 5X'd our prison population. What the heck happened? What I happened mean, there? I, I can tell you. Go I can ahead. tell you. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me let me bring a quote for you from the. This is the assistant to the president for domestic affairs under Nixon. His name was John uh, Elrichman. Elrichman. L L. How do you say that? A E H R. Elrichman. Elrichman. Yes. Okay. This is a direct quote from the assistant mm -hmm. to Nixon. He was the assistant to the president for domestic affairs under Nixon. Okay. This is his quote. You want to know what this war on drugs was really about. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? He said, we know we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war in Vietnam or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. The system has been designed to be oppressive on purpose. This is disgusting. This is a disgusting system. It doesn't need to exist. It was made up. Well, yeah, when you start when you start finding out what what it is, you're like, oh my god! And now, and yeah. now Mel, you can never put your glass the, the the rose colored glasses back on because the first time I read that, I was like, what? But it doesn't sound real. It sounds like a fiction. Oh, no. yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. just yeah. it's mind boggling because it's something you know. So it, those of us, especially you know, little white girls who grew up in little white communities, are like, oh, police are good and jails are good and they keep us safe. And then you start peeling back, like you said, Tisha, the onion layers of this thing, and you're like. Oh my God! Yeah. This is insidious. It is insidious, and it's all—it's riding all the way to the core. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. It is. I was just saying, cut me off if you need to, because I know, like, time is running short. But one thing that I think is also very insidious, and that and that touches very much on what you were talking about about humanizing people, is like the system is also designed so that you don't hear from people who are inside. You are separated from people who are inside. You don't hear their stories. They have really no way to communicate with people on a large scale. And I don't know, like, if either of you have ever known anyone who was like incarcerated. Um, yeah, and so I'm seeing I'm seeing some nods to the folks listening <laughs> on audio only. I I think that <clears throat> there is so much more humanity inside the walls of prisons than people would ever expect. Um, I've had clients who write to us, for example, 
a retired or a former nurse who um, when all of the other women on her wing were not getting the care that they needed she would care for them and she would write to lawyers letting them know what was going on and how the health care was so bad but what she was trying to do to make sure that they got the care they need there were people who would write to us saying hey ignore the name on the envelope I'm not actually the one trying to get in touch with you my cellmate is but my cellmate never learned to read or write so I am he, they, he is dictating to me and I am writing it down for him and I'm doing that because I care about him and I want him to be okay um, wow. people who are incarcerated are just people and I think one of my like favorite <laughs> short explanations of that my friend who I mentioned um, had been inside for murder uh, one of his favorite things in the world was Harry Potter. And of course, this was, you know, years before the J.K. Rowling's Twitter fiasco. Um, he loved Harry Potter books and he read them while he was inside. And he had a cousin who worked at a Barnes and Noble or a Borders, um, who, whenever they got their shipment in of the next new book that was coming out, would sneak one out early and mail it to him so that he could get it the same day it was getting released to everybody else. And he would read it right away. And then what he would do is then let everybody else read it because everybody wanted to read the new Harry Potter book inside. So people were passing it along on the wings so that everyone got a chance to read it because my friend was the one person who had someone that could send him a copy. And hearing him tell this story was so wild to me because he was talking about how they were all so excited because they knew he was going to get the last book and they were all going to get to find out what happened at the end of Harry Potter's story because he was going to share the book with them once he finished it. And I thought to myself, like, oh, like I, I was like, 11 or 12 when the seventh Harry Potter book came out and I loved Harry Potter and I started like the midnight release at my local borders to like get my mm -hmm. copy and I immediately like started reading it and finished it in two days and it was this very strange moment of thinking like the two of us years apart in age at, and years miles apart in life experience were at this very same moment in time sitting in two very different places reading the exact same book and just excited to know how this story was going to end um, and that then I was going to go talk about it with all of my friends and he was going to go talk about it with all of his friends once they'd gotten a chance to read it like people who are incarcerated are, are people and are much more similar to us than the system would have us believe and that's, I, that's I think a good reminder it, it's just yeah when you say yeah. that I just so so much I think about bringing the human back into that human, mm -hmm. bringing the humanity back into that. And I think about this because we, I, one of the things I really want to drive home is in reminding people is that we're talking about a population of mm -hmm. people, right? Of people. And we're talking about a, a small population is who we're concerned about. And even smaller of that is who we really need to be housing for longer periods of time and how we do that. We can have that discussion. But what yes. about we what do we do with the 95 percent? And then of that five percent, most of that. Right. Because, yes. you know, whether you, whether you 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 kill somebody and I say kill somebody not necessarily murder somebody it can look very different uh, uh, you know we don't want to judge people on the the worst day of their life and it's not I'm not saying that because I also know people who had a family member be killed and, and yeah. that's going to look very different so we want to have that conversation what we don't want is a state who who cares nothing about people to make those full yes. decisions and and the one thing that we didn't talk about that I want to bring at least in the end of this conversation is really look at and have a conversation about what restorative justice yes. really looks like when we're talking yes. about community. And that, when you say humanity, it really brought that back and that full circle. And we'll have to continue this conversation online. We're all on We can TikTok. have a whole other episode about this. My goodness, thank you <laughs> and so I just much. Because really, I just really want to bring home that 
really investigate and for people to do and and this is one of the things that we talk about communal healing and we we don't have the answers because we're not finished beings but bringing that home and really if you have it sit down and do some convert some work in in learning about restorative justice because our system is built in a in a pyramid but what does it look like if we make it circular if we make it human if we stop using the practices that exclude people and start using ones that include people right because in restorative practice you include the person who caused the harm and the person who was harmed to come Mm -hmm. up with the answer yes and yes. those are the conversations I really, really want to have. So we it sounds like we might be coming back for an episode. Too. I think so. I think we're we'll gonna come back <laughs> until, for it. until then. Um, I'll happy to happy to be back anytime. <laughs> let's get this some final words in. Yeah. This has been so good. Let's get some final words in. So you talked about um pe- uh, people writing to people behind bars and I had the most amazing transformative experience writing to a prison pen pal through an organization that I highly recommend called Black and Pink that specializes in connecting people with LGBTQ inmates because LGBTQ people are often targeted in these systems by guards and other inmates. So offering extra support and resources. Um, I, I was just absolutely floored and brokenhearted to be writing to the person that I wrote to. I won't share their name for privacy purposes, but I learned so much from them. It was such an, a rich, uh, a rich relationship. And, um, you know, he told me that he, it wasn't for him. He felt like it wasn't safe to have friends on the inside. And I was like, literally one of his only friends. He's like, I just want a friend. I just want a friend. And I, and the things that I take for granted of having friends, that's a luxury to folks on the inside. So if you can, if you can find time in your schedule to pick up um, a pen and paper and write some letters, that can make a huge difference, not only for them, but for you, you will learn so much by doing something like that. So black and pink, go check it out, Google it. Um, um, For me, and I'm going to let Britt have the last word, but for me, one of the things I think about is really engaging with our local politics and understanding who is in charge of what and what our systems are because we out we if we learn more about it then we're we're starting to humanize um things that are happening around us and understand how these inner workings are um i'm a i'm a big believer in engaging with people um maybe doing some you know sending some stuff to a halfway house my mom actually has worked in um in in a social work for a really long time and she used to run a halfway house so i've been into them and engaged with people in them um and it's it's really hard to to not humanize a person when you're in front of them and you've heard about who they are and what has happened in their lives so if you are too trepidatious and not comfortable with going into a prison we can start at a halfway house because they can also connect you to other people as well so i think about that as well because um, it doesn't stop when you get released. If you do get released, you need all of those other things as well. Um, and Brett, we'd love to have the final word from you. All right, uh, echoing what both of you said so much. Um, and also, I guess I, my last words would be, uh, if you're at the end of this podcast and you're still thinking, I just have so many questions left about this abolition thing and I'm just not sure. Um, 
I'm glad you have questions and there's so many great resources that you can start learning from and engaging with and even if you're still you know a bit hesitant um, it's great to start having those conversations and those thoughts and some reading recommendations that I really love for folks who are just getting curious about abolition uh, include Our Prisons Obsolete by the incredible Angela Davis, um, Until We Reckon by Danielle Sered which addresses a lot of questions about how do we also restore justice to people who get harmed. Um, and Mariam Kappa's uh, recent release, um, We Do This Till We Free Us, um, which has so many wonderfully articulated essays and thoughts about the movement and what it means and why it matters. Um, and I hope that this has perhaps at least opened your mind and opened your heart a little bit to thinking differently about how we treat folks who are incarcerated and what sort of possibilities exist to truly bring justice to our world. We're going to make sure we add those resources that you talked about on all of our socials so people can see them, read them, hear them, and hear you. Thank you so much for being with us. We're already got to figure out a schedule, too, and maybe the conversation will be more linear, or maybe it won't, and that's okay, too. (laughs) That's okay, too. So, uh, But thank you. Thank you so much. Um, How can people find you, Britt? Oh, how How can can people people find find you? Yes. Yes. uh, They can find me on Twitter at Britt Dorton. D-O-R-T-O-N. T-O-N. Yes. Brit with two T's. D-U-R-T-O-N. Yeah. Got it. And uh, excellent. Thank you so much. This has been such an amazing conversation. I have really been challenged by this. I thought I knew some things about this topic. I still have so much to learn. Really, really grateful for your expertise and and best of luck in your program. And you're going to make a phenomenal She's a law student, lawyer. y'all. That's a lot of work. Oh, my God. <laughs> a you, lot I, of just, work. The, word, the world better watch out when you are a lawyer. <laughs> I am so excited for that. Civil oh, rights attorney, here we come. Yes. Here we come. Yes, yes. here we go. All right. So well, roll you, that outro, Mel. Yeah. Oh, for those ahead. of you listening. Yeah, almost there. For those of you oh. listening, you can catch us every week, every other week through uh, November of this year, October of this year. We are on uh facebook youtube and twitter live you can also watch us later there or you can catch us on <clears throat> excuse me that was not a dramatic pause just coughing uh, <laughs> you can catch us on apple uh podcasts you can catch us on google play and you can catch us on spotify so please like subscribe uh, follow the show your support means a lot help us get the word out on important topics like what Britt brought to us today, the awkward conversations, the tough conversations that are, in the end of the day, really not that awkward, you know, tough, but it's, uh, there's a certain joy in, in, in advocating for restorative justice. And, and communal healing. That's what we do. healing. That's what yeah. we do. Awesome. All right. Now I will roll the intro, friends. <laughs> Outro? Out. So this we're is where we get awkward, Brit. We're starting all over again. It's the beginning and the end. It's the, be- the middle, so we're so good. The beginning, it's the, it's the bread. It's the bread that is awkward. Every time. Thank you I all. Do something weird. Thank you. See you all in right. two weeks. <laughs> See you soon. Bye. Bye.